Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Have a great day. I'm Bill. I'm an alcoholic. Um, uh, thank you to Matthew for asking me to chair tonight. This is uh, a big sta- This is like a tall stage. Um, and with a microphone. Uh, so here I am at an AA meeting. Um, my sobriety date is April 19th, 2013. Uh, it's not my first sobriety date. I had a few before that. Uh, my home group is Knuckleheads. It's a men's meeting in uh, Central District, uh, Tuesday nights at 7 o'clock. Um, those are two important things for me. Um, I think that, uh, I guess there's like a basic format for this kind of thing, right? I'm supposed to like, what I always do is I always share for like forever about how it used to be and like how terrible it was and stuff. And then like I get to the end, it's like, oh, there's like one minute left. It's like, oh, my life is like tight now. Okay. Thanks. Bye. (laughs) Um, I'll, uh, (laughs) so I'll try not to do that. Um, what happened? Where, where did I come from? I'm from Ohio. I'm from Akron, Ohio. That's where I was born and uh, raised in the suburbs there. Uh, it's a place where there's not a lot going on. Um, I had a pretty good upbringing. Uh, although some of my family members were like in and out of AA, and um, there's definitely some alcoholism going on. My mom, for instance, would just kind of like disappear once in a while. Like, we didn't know where she was or what was going on there. Uh, but otherwise, you know, it was, it was pretty good. Um, when I was a teenager, I, I mean, I remember the first time I drank alcohol. It wasn't, like, a, a huge deal. When I was, like, maybe 14 or so, um, I smoked weed for the first time. And I started drinking uh, pretty, like, immediately uh, sort of, like, You know, like, as I became a teenager, I kind of felt like nobody understood me. I guess that's probably kind of normal. Um, but I kind of also felt like nothing was ever going my way and uh, that life was really unfair. And, um, I don't know, as I entered high school, I kind of, like, this is a part of my story. I don't like to, like, I don't want to, like, bounce around too much on substances. But, you know, the first time I smoked weed... Uh, it, like, blew my mind, and it was exactly what I wanted all the time, and, um, but it was also hard to get, and alcohol was, like, really awesome, too, and basically every weekend in high school for my first couple years was, like, if we couldn't get weed or alcohol, my, like, two friends and I or whatever, uh, that was a failure, and we were, like, really bummed out, and it wasn't, like, it wasn't even worth hanging out wasn't worth doing anything. Um, that kind of progressed. You know, I got through high school. I got to college. I failed miserably all my classes the first semester. Uh, all I did was sit in my room by myself uh, in the house that, you know, I finally got to move out of my parents' house, you know? It's like, sweet. Like, I'll get, I'll get messed up all the time. And that's exactly what I did. And, uh, and I failed all my classes. And, um... I don't know, you know, for like a number of years, the way that my life went was that um, slowly but surely, the position that I found myself in was that um, every single day, I needed to be ingesting some kind of drug. And then like, over a little bit more time, um, like, all the time during the day, I needed to be ingesting some sort of drug. I I didn't feel like... I didn't feel like it was possible to live without it. You know, like, it was so... What a terrifying notion, um, you know, to, to, to not have drugs and alcohol at any point during my day. You know, if I was going to the bank, I had to get high. If I was doing homework, I had to get high. If I was going to visit my grandpa, I had to get high. Um, 
And I kind of like found myself in this position where I, I kind of I knew a little bit what was happening, which was like, huh, you know, like I definitely can't control this. Um, but it's it's what needs to happen. So uh, I lived that way for I don't know a, a number of years. I got arrested once. I didn't really I didn't get you know, I drove drunk a lot. Uh, but I didn't get any DUIs. Um, I didn't get into any major, major external trouble, you know. I guess, like, I consider myself a fairly high-bottom alcoholic. Um, however, you know, there's a tradition somewhere over here that says, uh, you know, the only requirement for AA membership is a desire to stop drinking. If you follow that through, um, you know, if I have a desire to stop drinking and I can do it, I'll just do it. I could not do that. So um, when it got bad enough, and for me it was kind of like wrapped up in, uh, along with a relationship, um, you know, basically as with somebody that kind of threatened to leave. Um, and, uh, you know, I came into AA for the first time because basically, like, I was, like, blacking out every night. And there were a lot of days where I'd be like, I'm not going to drink today. Um, and that, you know, that wouldn't happen. Um, I was hiding things from people. You know, I would kind of hit, like, different bars by myself. I was a very, like, isolated drinker. Uh, I just wanted to, like, nothing to do with anybody. Because people, like, could could hurt me, you know? Or, like kind of take, I'm a big time, like, people pleaser. So, like, people could, like, ask something of me, and then I'd be, like, obligated to, like, do that for them, whatever it is. I didn't want anything to do with that. I just wanted to be by myself and just kill all my feelings. Um, and so I could, like, hop to, like, a different bar and, like, get a drink at, like, one bar, and then the bartender wouldn't judge me, so I'd, like, go to the other bar. And then the same thing with, like, corner stores and gas stations and stuff. I guess where it really came into play was, like, when I turned 21, um, because it's like, oh, there's like alcohol everywhere, and I can go everywhere, and I can bounce around. And um, <clears throat> so, the first time I came to AA, I came to a meeting. I, I kind of knew that there was all I knew about AA was that there's this thing called AA, and when you go there, it fixes your problems. I knew that it existed for a while, and in my in the back of my head. Um, I knew that at some point I would have to end up there. And that when it got bad enough, I would end up there. And that's just where the, the wall would be. And that would be okay and whatever. And, you know, as long as that day wasn't today, I would just keep on keeping on. And, um, that day came. I went to an AA meeting. And I sat down. And everybody was going around the room. And they were saying, my name is so-and-so and I'm an alcoholic. And then it came to me. And I said, uh, my name is Bill. And I don't know what's happening. And then I started crying. And I don't know what I said after that. And I think everybody kind of awkwardly probably at some point somebody said, thanks, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I had this experience of what such, like this love from all these strangers. You know, I was, <laughs> I was out in the parking lot in my car just like bawling. And somebody approached me. And they saw me. They said, you want to go get food? I said, yeah, okay. And so um, I was really blown away because I'd had this thought in my head that, uh, you know, I used to have these friendships with people. I used to share things with people. I used to have friends. <laughs> I didn't have that really when I came into AA. And um, so for a few months, the first time I came into AA, I bounced around. And um, basically the story is like, There's, there's, there's stuff to do in AA, <laughs> right? So, like, uh, I got really blown away by all this stuff and, and, like, wow, what a cool thing, all these people and all this stuff. And I got into fellowship a little bit, and I went to meetings. And I found that when I went to meetings, I stopped drinking, which was incredible because, I, you know, I couldn't – every other thing I ever tried wouldn't, wouldn't work. The problem with that was it only lasted for, like, a few months. And um, I went back out again – I came back in once in a while when I got, like, sad enough or, um, you know. 
my experience is that I had to become really miserable to really come into AA and like work it, do the, do those. Um, I was in another relationship (laughs) where, um, that was really nasty and like, you know, I had been sober on and off, but like, it was kind of like this ultimatum of like, you got to go to treatment or whatever. And, um, I'm not really sure how it happened. You know, this whole thing of like a higher power thing that I like really rebelled against a lot. Like in my head, when I, when I, before I came back to AA this time, um, I really didn't want to come back to AA because there's this higher power thing. And like, there's, it was like God, like it was like, well, you guys say it's not God, but like you say God. So like, you're talking about God and like, that's, that's lame. And, um, I thought I would go to a hospital and like get some, get some, some science down on that, you know, and some doctors in on it. Um, some of you may know, you know, I mentioned that I'm from Akron, Ohio. So I just picked the closest hospital to where I lived. And so uh, that's like the first hospital where Bob and Bill like brought in patients with Sister Ignatia and like there's this whole story. So I kind of got forced into it. Um, a little bit. I mean, I didn't, I didn't have to do any of that, but I guess the way I look at it today is that it's not God, by the way. It doesn't have to be God. Um, I connect with, I try to connect with a higher power on a daily basis today um, because it's, it's pretty basic. In the past, I could not stop drinking. Bill could not stop drinking. I could not, every single day, I tried and it would not happen. I have no idea how I was able to stop drinking. It, it's, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. The only thing that could make sense is that it, it wasn't me. Because I tried everything. Um, so my experience in AA has been pretty wild. I mean, I've had a spiritual experience. It has required a leveling of my pride and a... a level of self-searching that has been uncomfortable. Um, I live a life like a human being today, which means that I do get uncomfortable, even with things that aren't related to AA. Um, You know, in the last six months, I kind of have had, you know, I've been sober for a couple years, but I've kind of had this, like, crisis of integrity where I realized that I had to quit my job and I had to break up with my girlfriend, and, um, you know, I wasn't working AA. And when I'm not working AA, you know, like, when I take alcohol away from, from my life, you know, if I don't do anything else about that, I, I become really, you know, the book says rest, restless, irritable, and, and discontent. Um, you know, I become that way. Um, so I guess what I'm saying is, Through working the steps, through coming to AA and doing some key things, it took me a while to do because, like, I, I fought tooth and nail. Well, eventually I got miserable enough that it's like, okay, yeah, I guess I'll try, to, I'll try a sponsor. Okay, yeah, I guess I'll work the steps. Really? Okay, yeah, I guess I'll pray every day. Um, it's been a series of, like, plateaus of, like, man, I really don't want to have to do that. But... You know, the way that my mind works, um, man, I, I, I really do have, like, a spiritual malady. I'm a really selfish guy, and it gets me into trouble. And um, and what I've found time and time again is when I really, like, actually commit to taking the action involved, um, outlined in this book that I was going to read something from, but I, I got 45 seconds left. Um <laughs> You know, whenever I take that action involved, um, whatever the next right step is, or whatever's right in front of me, um, you know, I feel better in a way that um, I never was ever before in my life. Um, So I don't take my sobriety for granted at all, ever. It's totally, it's actually likely that I won't stick around, you know, 
um, I may not be here in a year or six months or 10 years or whatever. Uh, you know, the diseases uh, of alcoholism is like pretty intense. Um, but uh, that's why I just, um, I don't take anything for granted, but I'm super duper grateful uh, for this program. And um, I hope that made sense. I'll stop talking now. Thank you. All right. Hi, I'm Elizabeth, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, I'm really happy to be here tonight. Uh, the first thing I would do when Massa speak is um, pray to my higher power that I can be humble and tell the truth. Um, so I guess I'll start off just kind of telling you about my um, upbringing and how I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I grew up in Illinois, and I uh, had two siblings, and we had an alcoholic father. And um, I always told everyone, like, it was like an occupation. I was like, oh, yeah, my dad is an alcoholic. Um, like, it was just something, like, it wasn't a big deal. And, um, you know, so we grew up that way, like, oh, uh, my sister come home. She's like, I just saw dad getting a DUI at the 7-Eleven. Um, so, you know, and then he'd come home and like, we wouldn't talk about it. And, uh, and then he said, um, oh, well, you know, I was, I picked up, uh, bicycling, like I'm going to start riding my bike to work. And we're all like, yeah, it's for health reasons. Um, but, uh, so that it was just kind of like, you know, let's, let's not talk about like seriousness of this disease. Let's not even acknowledge that it's a disease. Um, and so, so it kind of went on that way, but the cool thing about that was that was the very first time that, um, I heard of Alcoholics Anonymous, um, because my dad was court ordered to go there and it, it didn't work for him. But, um, so I just went on my way. Um, you know, I started drinking when I was, I think I had my first drink when I was 14, uh, started drinking a little bit more when I was 15. And then when I was 16, that's when it really started. Um, I was a weekend binge drinker. I couldn't wait to get through that week of school so that I could drink with my friends on the weekend. And um, when I was 18, I got a fake ID and I started going to bars and no one really questioned me. I lived in sort of small town, Illinois, suburb of Chicago. And, um, and so um, I mean, I was the kind of girl before I had my fake idea, I would befriend the homeless people and ask them, you know, to go buy me alcohol and I would give them a few dollars. And, um, you know, I had all these, these secrets that I didn't realize, um, that I was keeping secrets, but, um, they were definitely things that I felt shame around. And, um, and part of it was that, um, well, I also used to black out a lot when I drank and, um, and I would, destroy friendships. And, um, luckily I was in a school that was big enough where I could just get new friends. And, um, you know, that started to wear on me that I see today was not the way that I wanted to live my life. Um, just using people and hurting people and uh, moving on to the next one. So I carried that with me. And, um, I just, I think I thought deep down I was a bad person. And so, um, you know, I, when I was uh, 17, my mom um, married my dad's boss. And, um, you know, that again, that was just like, oh, okay, well, that's just like another normal thing that everybody does that, right? Um, so you know, there's all this stuff that I'm like stuffing down and um, not wanting to, to walk through. So um, when I was a teenager, they put me on all sorts of antidepressants and mood stabilizers, um, because I became suicidal. And, um, again, I'm just not dealing with my emotions. I'm just kind of going along using alcohol on the side. You know, they said, Oh, you can't drink alcohol with these, um, medications, but you're not of age anyway. So you're, you're probably not drinking. Right. And it's like, yeah, probably not. Um, but, um, I loved alcohol. And when I, I went away to school and I continued to drink, and um, stuff all my problems down, um, picked up some other other interests besides alcohol, and um, 
you know, I was miserable and my life was very small. I had a few friends who drank like I did. And, um, but even them, I wasn't telling them what was really going on with me and how depressed I was and how I just hated my life. Um, but if to the outside, you know, person, they, they would see that things looked like they were going pretty well for me. Um, and I hadn't lost everything. And um, when I graduated from college, um, I packed up everything I could in my car and, and I drove out to Seattle. And um, my mom's twin sister lives out here at Green Lake. And I knew I wanted to be here. And um, I knew I wanted to live on Capitol Hill so that I could um, stop um, driving drunk. I could walk to all the bars and, um, and that, that did happen. I stopped driving drunk when I moved here. So that, I thought that was an improvement. Um, <laughs> but, um, but what happened was, um, things became, um, more clear to me that it was pretty dangerous what I was doing, uh, living in a city where, you know, I would just walk home, um, blacked out. And, um, and I lived with, um, you know, I met someone on Craigslist and, we decided to, um, you know, we, he was looking for a roommate. And then, of course, we decided that we were going to date. And um, and so uh, he was um, also possibly an alcoholic. Um, and I just continued this spiral of um, this unmanageability in my life. And um, I thought that, oh, I was just drinking because I'm in school or I'm in high school, I'm in college, like that's what everybody does. And then I grew, I um, moved out here and saw that my, my alcohol consumption was like getting worse. Um, and, and by worse, I mean, I was drinking more, um, I could see it either way. But, um, so <clears throat> something happened one, one morning and it was a Sunday, um, I woke up and, um, I thought I can't do this anymore. Like I just, something has got to change because the anxiety wouldn't go away. I couldn't drink it away. So I, uh, I looked up an AA meeting and I have no idea how that happened that one day where I just thought I'm going to look up an AA meeting. Like I have, I don't know where that came from. So, so I did that. Um, I smoked a bowl. And then, um, you know, the meeting didn't start till five. So, um, so I made it to that meeting that night though. And, um, you know, this man there, it was the, um, Capitol Hill Lano Club. He, he gave me a big book and he said, read the first chapter and bring the book back to me next week. And so, um, I thought, well, I have to return this guy's book. So I better read this and go back to that meeting next week. And, uh, and I did. And I kept going to these meetings at the Lano Club there and, um, um, about a month in a woman, um, reached out to me and she said, I can be your sponsor if you want. And, um, and I, I said, yes. So that's really when things started um, changing for me when, um, I showed some willingness to, to try sobriety because I was coming to meetings and I was drinking in between. Um, and I, I quit drinking and I continued to, smoke pot for about three months. And, um, and I lied about it to my sponsor because, um, well, I just didn't tell her, um, but I thought it's Alcoholics Anonymous. And, um, so I mentioned it to her one day, like, Oh, people still do other stuff. Right. And she was like, no, no, we don't do that. And, um, (laughs) so, so I, um, you know, eventually, um, changed my sobriety date and, um, actually, um, going to have six years in a few weeks here. And I uh, have no idea how that happened. I think I'm just getting older. But um, it's just one day at a time, I've, I'm staying sober. And um, it's because I am in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous. Like, I don't know how else to, to say it. Because it's not like I'm doing anything different from anybody else in here. Like, I'm just going to meetings. Um, you know, I got a sponsor. And um, I, work, I work with a lot of women in the rooms and it's saved my life. Um, my one year sobriety birthday, the night before I was um, hospitalized for suicidal ideation. And, and the first time I had a breathalyzer and I, I told the doctors, you know, well, that's the problem because I'm, I'm sober. Um, you know, and I just didn't know how to live and I didn't know how to live, um, without something 
altering my mood. And um, I learned how to do that in here. And I, I really suggest hanging around and trying the steps. Um, I really balked with them. I, I didn't actually um, finish the 12 steps for about a year and a half. And I, I believe that um, when I started making amends and starting to face the world again is when um, I, I felt some serenity. So uh, it took me a while to, to have that turn around. But then ever since then, um, things have been kind of like a spiral up. And it's not um, always consistent, but I can say in the last um, year or two, uh, I've felt a lot of peace more than I ever have. And um, the, the relationships that I have with the women in the rooms, um, especially my sponsor, it's just, I would never want to give that up. Um, my sponsor and I, like, I tell her everything, even when I feel like I'm a horrible person for whatever I did. Um, I tell her and then we talk about it and um, it takes that power away from it. And it makes me realize that, um, well, A, that I'm still alcoholic and I have that mind. Um, but then also just that, like remembering that there is a different way to live and there's a solution because I didn't know that before. When I came in here, um, I thought that I was just going to have to not drink so that um, I would stop doing these horrible behaviors. But then I realized that, oh, I'm still doing them, but I just, I've, I'm aware. And um, that awareness for me um, is a gift today. But when I first started feeling it and I thought, oh my gosh, I'm getting worse. Um, it was because I wasn't numbing out anymore. And I, I had to go through that and that pain um, to like push through to get to the other side where I could start changing and acting as if I didn't have those character defects. So, um, it's been, it's been a hard journey for a while there, but, um, I find when I stick to the program and, um, you know, for me, it's, it's a balance. It's, um, you know, I, I think I did Alcoholics Anonymous, um, alcoholically when I was new and I didn't know what else to do with my time because I didn't really have any friends. I'd only lived here for, um, I don't know, nine months in Seattle. And, um, the only friends I had were my bar buddies. And, uh, so I've made so many friends in these rooms and it's because I show up and, um, you know, I'm not trying to, to brag, but it's like, it's, it's about showing up. And it's, and I think part of it's for me is I just, I didn't know where else to go. It's not like I had this wonderful program. I just, I have to be here. Um, this is where I hear you guys talking about what's happening in your lives and how you're getting through it. And it gives me hope. And I need that because when I stay away from you for even a week or two, I feel it. I feel like that anxiety coming back and I can't afford to let that come back in and rule my brain because it will take over. And um, that's why I like to hear people's stories about and they go out there and, and things get worse or they're the same. That sounds like hell to me. I, I don't want to go back to that. Um, I never knew who I was before I came in here. And now I get to kind of like mold and form my own life and change my perspective of who I am because I didn't like who I was before when I was drinking. And this is like a new opportunity for me to show up in a different way. And, um, I just, I love Alcoholics Anonymous because of that. And it's a foundation of uh, my spiritual life. It's not the only thing that I do, but I need it to be there as a base, um, as a platform for me to, to grow. Because if I'm not growing, I'm, I'm dying. <laughs> you know, if I'm not in here trying to live um, a spiritual life, then um, I'm just stagnant. And um, and I don't like that. I don't know if it's an alcoholic thing, but like, I can't just sit still. So I'm just happy that I made it to this, the positive part of my life where, you know, I'm, I'm happy, joyous and free. This is my goal today. And um, my old goal was just to see how many beers I could drink on the weekend. <laughs> so I feel like this uh, program has made me have some more like, fulfilling dreams and realize that I can actually get to them. So I'm um, just really happy to be here tonight. I just have a few seconds left. Thank you. Mm -hmm.
Um, I'm Megan. I'm an alcoholic. My sobriety date is March 26, 2011. I have a home group. It's called Sicker Than Most. It's held on Friday nights at 8 p.m. And I have a sponsor. Her name is Michelle, and she's absolutely phenomenal and a real uh, go-getter, you know. Um, I'm an active participant in Alcoholics Anonymous and in my recovery today. And so what I kind of wanted to talk about today was kind of how I got here, um, what happened, what, what it was like. But I mostly want to talk about, like, what I do today to maintain my spirituality. So so how it all began, like, I, you know, I'm, the, I'm a, under the assumption that, like, I was different when I was little, right? So, like, I was different. I was the only girl of of three kids, so I had two older brothers, and I was the only girl in the neighborhood, and I really didn't, like, fit in, if you know what I mean, Um, because they always wanted to play cars, and no one wanted to play Barbies or whatever, right? And so, like, I always felt different, and then I moved, and when I, you know, when I got in to school, I was actually moved to Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, I don't know if anyone knows knows where that's at, but uh, it's a uh, it's a little bit smaller. I'm actually born in Redmond, but I moved there when I was six. So um, I always thought that I didn't fit in, and so um, I would do things to like I would lie and I would make myself look better. Like, mom, I didn't do that. Like, my brother did that, right? Like. <laughs> I'm really good at lying and making my mom believe it, right? So that was, like, a first sign for me um, when I was little is that, like, I was really good at getting what I wanted. Like, manipulation is my number one character defect. Um, So, like, going on, like, further, like, my first drink was phenomenal. The hangover was horrible, right? Um, I was 13 when I took my first drink, and... I got to be who I wanted to be because I was so busy manipulating people to believe, like, what I wanted them to see that I took that drink, and what happened was, like, pure freedom. Like, that became my solution. But the hangover really held me back for a little bit, right? Like, that was not fun. I was at a hotel, and the next day... um, the worst hangover, and my mom took me on a lake drive. So that kind of held it back for a little bit, right? So um, so progressing through, because um, I'm trying to keep it short, right? Um, I just continued to drink, and when I drink, I would drink to blackout. Like, that was my deal. Um, I didn't like to feel. I liked to, like, be who I thought I was when I was under under any substance, you know? And so that's that's what I looked for, and I always chased it. Like, I felt so comfortable just, you know, the phenomenon of craving kicked in at a young age for me. And so I was really comfortable in that atmosphere. So what happened was, like, I continued along that path, and, like, it would get worse, and I'd start going out more, like, throughout high school. And, um, when I hit senior year, like, I was, like, full-blown five, six days a week, like, uncontrollable drinking, and I had to, like, drop out of a couple classes so that I could, like, pass my high school and get the diploma because I was, I was actually smart. I was functioning for a little bit, and um, I did dual enrollment because I'm an intellectual. So, <laughs> uh, so... I tried to do that while maintaining my drinking, and it wasn't working. So that was one of my first signs. And um, also, when I was in high school and I was in my senior year, like, I got blacked out drunk, and I tried to kill myself. Um, And that's when my mom was like, maybe you have a problem. Maybe you're an alcoholic. And I'm like, no, I'm not an alcoholic. I'm not going to therapy. I'm not doing what you tell me because I know what's best for me, and what's best for me is complete oblivion. So that's what it looked like, and from there out, like, I was, like, uncontrollable, like, drinking all the time, like, doing whatever I could so that I could get by. So that's what it looked like for me, and it, and it happened, and um, I got sober at 22, um, 
And by the end of my drinking, I was suicidal every day. Like, I woke up wanting to kill myself because I didn't know what else to do. I couldn't stop. And and <clears throat> I'd go to bed being like, this is the last day. I'm not doing this anymore. I can't control it. Like, I'm going to try and control it by not drinking tomorrow. That's a good idea. So I'd do that. And then I'd be, I'd be out by the next day, like, let's say 10 o'clock in the morning. Like, <laughs> I woke up had the thought, and it passed. Like, I couldn't stop. So I was out of control with my drinking, and I couldn't control it whatsoever. So if that isn't a first step, I don't know what else is. Um, so I tried to stop, and my parents caught me because, like, I was stealing from them, and I was taking out payday loans, and I was doing all this stuff, and um, I got caught. Um, and so I, I stayed sober for about 30 days and then I couldn't control, like, I couldn't control it. Like I was white knuckling it. I don't know any white knucklers in here, maybe, um, white knuckling it. And so like I stopped and then, and then the time came, the phenomena craving kicked in hard enough and I, and I went back out and I tried to do it again by myself because like my parents, I got caught again. That's my thing. I like to get caught. Um, and uh, I, I was sober for two weeks, and then I went back out. So that phenomenon of craving just kept coming back, and it kept coming back with a vengeance. Like, it was out for me. And that's a really scary spot to be. So, like, by the third time I got caught, I was like, I give up. Complete surrender. Like, I don't know how to do this. I can't go on this way. And that's when I called a friend over... She was living in Shoreline at the time. She had gone through detox, and she was in Oxford. And so I was like, help me. I don't care, like, what is it that I need to do? And she's like, well, Lakeside Milam is a good treatment center. So, like, basically I was, like, trying to appease my parents at this time, and I called Lakeside Milam, and I got a, I got a bed, but not for a month. So... <laughs> I got to be back out for a, for a month, and that was fun. Um, and so I actually, yeah, that's fun. Um, I can't control it. Phenomenon of craving. Love that. Um, and so basically I, you know, full swing until I got here. And I was actually one of those happy people in treatment because I was so defeated, and I hated myself, and I couldn't look in the mirror, and, and it was complete what is it, um, demoralization, you know, like, I can't remember the first word, but I'm not very good at quoting a book, <laughs> so, um, I, I was, I had arrived, you know, I was happy to be there, not a lot of people were, but, um, I just, like, I knew that there was a way out, I just didn't know how to stay sober, right, and so I got into Oxford after I got out, and, um, I guess I'd like to say I'm of the educational variety because, like, there was two years where, like, I would do work in the program, and um, I was still really toxic, and I was still doing things like stealing and cheating on, like, Oxford rules and from my work. So, I mean, I was sober, but I didn't have recovery. So, um what happened was I ended up having a sponsor that, like, it just wasn't working out because I, I didn't know really what it was to be of service in the rooms. And so I was sponsorless for four months, and that was really brutal. Um, and um, came the day where I was, my home group at that time was working with others. It's women's meeting, and it's at 6.30 on Friday nights. It's really amazing. And um, I got a sponsor, and I started working the steps, and I vigorously started working the steps because I was at that point um, in, my, in my sobriety where, like, I was just as miserable as I was when I was out. So there came the work, and I vigorously did the work. And the funny thing is, is, like, I didn't see it at first. Other people saw it in me when I started doing the steps, and I, and I took a third step, and I, you know, I worked through my fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, and um, 
and started making the amends, you know, and like the nine step promises do come true. Um, I was in Portland, Oregon, or Oceanside, I don't know, Ocean Shores or something, Um, Seaside maybe, I don't know. Um, (laughs) I was in Oregon, and um, my brother, I, I had to make an amends to him, and and I had had pawned his PlayStation 3, and I wanted to tell him. <laughs> I know. Some of those things we do out there, right? Um, but I, I thought that that was one of the main things. And, like, I went through, like, my little log of things on my little card because I get really nervous making amends just, like, speaking. And so um, I was like, is there anything that I left out? And he's like, yes. And I was like, Okay, here we go. And um, he was like, when you tried to kill yourself, like, I was devastated. And um, it was a really, it was a really good thing to hear, right? Like, we, what helps me today, I guess I should say, is like, is hearing the things that I don't want to hear so that I can grow as a result of it. Because, like, I am never going to treat my brother that way. And I'm never, like... I mean, I can't say never, but, like, I am actively working towards not doing those things today that I that I had told them, like, how can I make this right? So that's what I'm doing today, right? And the truth is, is, like, in recovery, um, through the maintenance steps, luckily, like, but I get to struggle in the room still, right? So um, I actually just had a bout where, like, I was treating the people that, that love me like crap, and I didn't understand why, like... Like, I'm like, why? And I pray, but, like, I wasn't meditating. I wasn't following 10, 11, and 12, the maintenance steps, taking an active third step. And I was I was wondering why. I'm like, why isn't it working? Well, the truth is, is that I wasn't diving into the steps of recovery, and I wasn't utilizing my maintenance steps. So that was, that was a hard blow. But the truth is, is I'm so grateful for the people that are around me today because they're honest with me, and I get an opportunity to, like, right my wrongs. The tenth step is real, like, in my life today. I promptly admit when I'm wrong today. And that's one of the biggest gifts other than sponsoring women. That is the highlight of my recovery today, is that I get to help walk another woman through the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous because it saved my life. Um, and I'm super grateful um, that people want me to take them through the steps. I'm like, God, I'm crazy. Oh, my God. Like, you really want me to take you through the steps? But the truth is, is, like, they see something in me that, like, I'm not able to see sometimes, right? Like, I suffer bodily and mentally from the disease of alcoholism. And, and utilizing the steps, like, helps me, like, maintain my spiritual life. And it helps me have relationships with others today. And that's so important, and and it's important to have a relationship with my sponsees today, Um, and I show up, like, I never showed up when I was out, like, that was, like, the last thing on my mind, and and sometimes the things that I don't want to do today, like, when it's Sunday and I want to relax because it's not a work day, I I don't necessarily want to, well, I, I guess I should refrain from saying that, like, I want to. I get to because, like, my life depends upon Alcoholics Anonymous today and, like, actively working the steps and seeing the light turn on in a woman's eyes, like, after doing a fifth step or even a third step. I mean, we all have different waves of the way we go through it, right? So, um, for me, it was a third step. That was my favorite. But um, it doesn't matter. It's, It's everyone's journey is different, right? So, like, allowing them to have their journey and not trying to impose an expectation on that is huge because I have expectations all the time, right, until I get put back into place because I have people around me today that, like, call me out on my stuff, and that's huge. Sponsors, she's she t- likes to tell me I'm a storyteller, and so, like, when I do tell her my story, She's like, is that your story or is that the truth, right? Like, well, it's the truth and my story. Do you not get that? No, I'm just kidding. Um, But I come to the realization, because I'm of the educational variety, that it takes me a little bit sometimes, but I get the opportunity to right my wrongs, and that's been my story as of recently, that, like, I get to do the active 10 step and I get to meditate today like I got to meditate with my sponsee today and it was so phenomenal 
and I'm out of time, but it was so phenomenal. I'm so grateful that I get that opportunity because I owe my life to Alcoholics Anonymous. Thank you. Hello, I'm Terry, and I'm an alcoholic. Uh, Matt's going to regret asking me to do this, but uh, I appreciate him asking anyway. Uh, so my sobriety date is 3-23-2015. Uh, I have a home group, Jaywalkers. I have uh, sponsors, name's Chris P. Um, I have a service position at Jaywalkers. I'm not sponsoring anybody, and I haven't yet. So basically, I'm just over a year into the program. Um, how it was for me, uh, I grew up in a small little town, poorest people you ever met, uh, good family, good parents. <clears throat> they didn't drink around me. They were uh, sober, uh, at least in the house. They grew up with really, really alcoholic parents, both sides. Um, we moved away from them when I was really young, so I didn't see that. I, didn't, I wasn't ever exposed to uh, active addiction. Um, even growing up in a small town, I mean, for the most part, my parents didn't really party. We were busy just trying to make a living, uh, we being <laughs> them. Uh, of course, we wanted to eat food, so we were happy that they were working hard, but for the most part, uh, we were happy. I had a good childhood. I have no complaints. They loved us. They did the best they could, and uh, so I, I have to say, I don't have a reason for being an alcoholic. My parents are not my reason for being an alcoholic. <laughs> I had to ask myself that when I came into this program. Why, why am I an alcoholic? Um, so the small town, I, I grew up there, graduated there. I didn't, most people probably don't even know where it's at. It's Sultan. It's way out, Stevens Pass area. It's on the way. It's really just the slow spot on the road, to be honest. And it still is to this day. It t it's just really a dead town. Um, but my parents are still together to this day. They've been married for 52 years, um, even through the hard times. Uh, as I got older, and as I, you'll hear in my story, I should have paid more attention to what they were doing right instead of uh, running away from them and that small town. Um, so my first drink was in high school, my junior year probably, nothing major, typical party. I was involved in the school, was a good student, uh, wrestling was my sport. Um, everything was good. Again, even school was good. Um, had no issues in school, out of school. Uh, but I was a little bit afraid of getting out of that small town, graduating, going off to college. I really, nobody in my family had done that, um, so it was kind of breaking new ground. Uh, it was exciting but nerve-wracking at the same time. Uh, but I really was looking forward to leaving the small town at the same time. Um, as much as uh, I didn't know what was out there, I guess I was willing and ready. Um, I got married really young, um, had my first son at 19, and so I didn't get very far out of that town for very long before I was right back at it. Um, it was what I knew. It was the support I needed at the time, and that marriage lasted seven years. Uh, so I stayed there, stayed in that small town. It was dual custody. Uh, he's a good kid. She's a great woman. We're still best friends. Uh, we were just too young. It, it wasn't going to work. Um, we made the best of it. And uh, so for the most part, we provided for him as a, as, as a team. And she's married to a super cool guy, super great guy. Um, so after that, I was single for one year and then met who would be my second wife. Uh, we dated for three years, got married. Uh, life seemed to be just right. We moved out. Uh, or we didn't move. I got a career in a fire, commercial fire sprinklers. I was a cabinet builder before that, but that gave me exposure to the city, got me out of that small town again, which is what I was looking for. And about the time my second son hit 10, we moved out of, out of that small town and into Mill Creek. Um, right at that 10-year mark in that relationship, Something wasn't right, and it was it, it was me. I wasn't right. Something was, I felt like getting into, uh, Mill Creek's not a city, but it sure as hell is a city compared to Salton. And, uh, 
there's a lot of happy hours <laughs> between Seattle where I was working and Mill Creek, and I found as many as humanly possible. There was a short window when from I would get off early from work, and my son would be catching the bus ride home. So I had about a two-hour window where I had some spare time, and uh, my wife wasn't going to be home for another two hours. So I would sneak. I was the two-drink guy. I'd show up at the bar or usually cocktail lounge or restaurant, two drinks and I'm out. Um, so I, I didn't want to look, I didn't want to be Norm. I didn't want everybody to recognize me when I came in. <laughs> I got friendly with the bartenders, you know, but and I, I really enjoyed meeting people. I felt like my world was really small, and that was part of my issue with the small town. And so when I got the chance, I'd basically talk to anybody and everybody I could. So, uh, um, so... As that relationship was kind of dissolving, um, she got her medicinal license and started smoking weed. And I felt like that was my pass. So now I could drink. Now I could be an addict because all I, I'd be able to throw her weed back in her face and have my excuse for drinking as heavily as I was. Um, she didn't know even an eighth of what I was drinking, to be honest. Uh, I was drinking at home doing construction projects. I would get drunk and rip a wall out of a house, out of our house, and start remodeling a bathroom. And there's probably three rooms in the house at all times in disrepair because I was got inspired to do something. So uh, either way, I mean, we, we, she worked well with me. We did. We, we were good at construction, and um, they seemed to get finished in a, a somewhat timely fashion. Uh, and to be honest, those, those construction projects were, were about the only thing in common we had left. And so uh, outside of that, we didn't even communicate. Um, so I found myself also, everything I would do outside of the house was things that I knew she wouldn't want to do. Because then she couldn't see me drinking. Whether it's going to watch a football game, whether it's going to watch the fights, whether it's going golfing, it didn't matter. I was building all of my social life around drinking and... It was all about things she wouldn't want to do with me. Um, once in a while, I would invite her, and she would have a bad time, and she wouldn't want to come again. And then I would talk negative, negatively about everything I was doing, too, and about the people I was doing it with. So I was throwing my buddies under the bus nonstop. <laughs> they were the dickheads. They were the scumbags chasing women. They were, they were bad people. So unfortunately, yeah, they took the brunt of that. Um, but I really, really did feel like she was obstructing my drinking. <laughs> Because I couldn't drink the way I wanted to drink. So that marriage ended in 2012. Um, and I got, for the first time, my, my son lived with her for that year, and I was part-time dad, um, which basically gave me all the time in the world I needed to drink. And it was literally, it, it got to a point where it was every night. It was every night. I didn't drink at home because that just depressed the shit out of me. So it was needless. I, I would find something every night to do, whether it be dancing, whether it be going. There's always a sport on, so I could always find people somewhere. So... Uh, Eventually, um, that, the, he was only lived with her for, the, for that year, then he moved back in with me, and I've been a single dad since then. Um, you know, I wasn't drinking at home, so he wasn't seeing it. Uh, you know, he knew I was out a lot, but I mean, he's a smart kid, and, and he's 18 now, so uh, he's fully aware. Um, but back in Mar last March, I got a DUI, I got pulled over, going basically to meet a girl on a date. Halfway there, I got pulled over and thrown in jail. Um, the hardest part of that, besides the concrete bed, is uh, I couldn't get a hold of my son. He didn't know where I was. Um, not that, you know, for a 17-year-old, that's probably not the biggest deal in the world, but for me, that was, it was a crusher. That was, uh, that was a turning point for sure. Um, and then the only person I could get a hold of to bail my sorry ass out of jail was the ex-mother-in-law. And... <laughs> <laughs> So that's a very humbling moment if you've ever <laughs> And at that point, my, uh, my uh, oldest son had, had gone through his own addictions, he, and he went really dark and really heavy. He was one of those kids living under the overpasses. He was, uh, matter of fact, I thought he was dead for three years. Um, and his mom is the sweetest woman in the world, and she died right along with him when we, we couldn't find him, we, couldn't, we didn't hear from him. Um, he had, been a, uh, he had been three months sober. He came with her 
my, the ex-mother-in-law to pick me up. So not only am I facing my ex-mother-in-law, I'm facing my older son, who was actually relishing the moment to give me some shit about spending my time in jail. Uh, the DUI is what I needed. Um, that, was, that was the push I needed. Um, to be honest, when I got pulled over, there was a sense of relief. I was not going to argue my way out of it. I wasn't even going to disagree with him. I was ready. I was ready I, for everything, and I already knew what was coming. So uh, I spent the night in jail, got out, went the next day and got the breathalyzer in my car. Um, two days after that, I went and had the assessment at Milam, and I made sure that she f- was convinced I was an alcoholic because you don't get deferment unless they agree that you're an alcoholic. And deferment was my goal from day one. I mean, it was as simple as looking it up on the Internet. They tell you exactly what to do. You know what you're looking at. <clears throat> and I did not want it on my record. So I jumped into it as fast and furious as possible. I thought I was beating the judge to it. The truth is it doesn't buy you anything. Sitting in that court, look, watching him go through 30 people ahead of me, no, there's just no. There's no talking your way out of it. He's heard every story. And by the time he got to me, and I was literally the last person, My, my attorney was going to try to plead something for me, and I said, no, don't, just don't. Let's just don't. I'm already in Milam. Let's just, we'll, we'll do that. We'll do the deferment. And uh, Milam was awesome for me. I, I, to be honest, that the fact that they explained to me that maybe I had a, a chemical reaction to alcohol, maybe um, it's hereditary, maybe there are things beyond my control. It wasn't just that I was a mental defect, although I am, and I admit it. <laughs> <laughs> They, uh, they gave me reasons for some of the poor decision-making. Um, I never really blamed alcohol for my stupid decisions. I knew I really felt like I was using alcohol as a tool, partly to push the, wife, the ex-wife away, partly to justify, to justify making bad decisions, um, especially as a single in relationships. Because um, I've been married basically since I was 19 with a one-year gap. So either way, um, I learned a lot. Uh, Milam... I'm a huge fan of it. I, I met some really impressive people there. There's one person in particular. She's not here tonight, but she will be listening to this. She, and I've said this to her, she saved my life. Um, she was the one person, not the one person. She was the person that I attached to that showed me that I could still have a social life. I could still have a life, period. You know, I, could, I could leave my house and not have to go drink. I could go to an event and not have to drink before the event. Um, and without that, it, this would have been a, a hell of a lot more miserable for me because I have to be social. I still have to be social. Um, the, the, uh, so the steps gave me tools, and I have a good sponsor, and he and I hit it off right away. Some just completely random guy at a completely random meeting that I wasn't even supposed to be at, that I was, I was skipping a night at Milam because a girlfriend from Milam said, you should come to this meeting because there's a girl you should meet. <laughs> so, <laughs> and uh, I met my sponsor there, so I was supposed to be there. There's a reason. I justify skipping the one night at Milam. <laughs> For that, As a matter of fact, it was my last night at Milam, um, so they just extended it one night. But uh, uh, so I still, ha- I mean, that was I still have to go to Milam. I still, I'm in the third phase after the year. It's a two-year program, so I'm still going once a month. I still have to do a check-in. I still have to have my slips signed. Um, but I, I've only got a minute left. I'll, I'll try to speed this up. Um, I love the meetings. I go to a ton of meetings. Um, I still have issues attaching to people, making contact. Um, I'm not sponsoring anybody. I raise my hand, but I'm not really aggressively trying to really help people. I'll do things when people ask. But for the most part, you know, I just do my part and go about it quietly. I have gotten really lucky, and I met somebody that's also in the program. Um, And so we have many meetings. It only takes two, right? So we literally talk AA I don't know, two hours a day probably. I mean, without beating a dead horse, we really do. It's it's really, she shares hers and I share mine, and um, we're building a life together with it. It's really impressive. It's something I never believed would happen or could happen, to be honest. Um, so uh, in closing, um, 
it has done everything for me that it, it, this is actually where I should have been all along, to be honest. This is this is something that I should have been working on. This is this has forced me to look at myself and work on personal defects that have been there all along. That um, if it, if if I hadn't gotten caught, it would have it would have progressed. I didn't get I didn't lose my job. I had a twenty year career. It's been really good to me. Uh, everything about my life is good. I have no complaints. I feel like a jerk saying that most of the time when I talk to people in meetings. Um, the promises really are coming true for me, and uh, I feel it. And my partner she feels it and she i see it in her and i am a, a true believer i still don't have a, a real strong spiritual contact but uh i absolutely believe in AA. i absolutely believe in in everything i've learned here and it's given me a lot of tools um and the, and the world is my oyster so thank you Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.